welcome to the Blind Tiger Podcast, your one-stop shop for beer news, reviews, and all things brews. I am your host, the man whose heart is filled with nothing but love for the darkness, the band, Rob Fisher. With me, as always, is the man who surprised none of us by taking gleeful joy in a McDonald's-themed Black Sabbath cover band, Mike Albright. And of course, the man whose audio wizardry means he has spent far too many years watching how the musical sausage is made and yet still wants to make it, the man (laughs) far, far too handsome for a rap battle, Jesse Clark. Today is September 23rd, 2015, and we're recording Sample Sode 50, Behind the Bar, Three Ducks. This is our third Sample Sode in our exciting new miniseries where we talk to the unsung heroes of the craft beer world, the men and women who work, quote-unquote, behind the bar. Tonight we are joined by a man whose reputation for turning the home of the Pennsylvania Amish into a city known for vibrant live music scene, the man who has created a fixture of live music, the man who started the Chameleon Club, Rich Ruoff. For those of our listeners not in the know, the Chameleon Club and Lizard Lounge is the premier venue for live music in the city of Lancaster. The Chameleon Club was started in 1985 in the back room of the Tom Payne's Restaurant. In 1991, the club moved to its multi-story building on the 200 block of Prince Street. The building hosts two venues and three bars, as well as a practice space for musicians. The Chameleon has had a number of acts come through their doors, acts that have continued following despite winning careers like Hanson, The Darkness, Insane Clown Posse, President of the United States of America, Moby, and countless others, as well as having provided venues to major acts before they were famous like Live, Fuel, uh, well, Fish was probably pretty big at that point, and Suddenly Tammy. But beyond just a venue for live music with an impressive history of booking great stars, the Chameleon also has one of the best craft beer selections for a music venue that I've ever been to. With many craft beers on tap, as well as a large selection of craft beer bottles, the Chameleon and the Associated Lizard Lounge means just because you were there for music doesn't mean you have to suck it up and drink majorly overpriced Bud Light all night. So we are pleased that Rich could spare some time to tell us some of the war stories about this Lancaster icon. So welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I didn't say anything too inaccurate in that introduction, I hope not. Uh, Just a quick correction. The original Chameleon was behind Tom Payne's restaurant. Opened that in June of 85, and then uh, we opened the new Chameleon, where it currently stands on Water Street, in 1988. Oh, really? June of 88. So we were there slightly less than three years on on, uh, Christian Street, the original location. Interesting. I'll have to make that edit on Wikipedia from the man himself, (laughs) Uh, because Wikipedia would be wrong on that, Um, because all of that was not before my time I was living in Lancaster, but I don't think my parents would have let me go. I would have been middle school at that point when you moved 91 yeah yeah so that's a long time ago so uh what made you decide you wanted to open up a music venue uh that's a good question uh years ago when i was young grr <laughs> uh i used to uh, race bicycles and that afforded me some travel around the country and also i went to college in university of wisconsin and milwaukee which had a pretty good music scene but in the in my travels i got to see a lot of cool towns and hear a lot of good music in other cities and then I came back to Lancaster at 22, and I'm thinking, boy, there's got to be more to uh, this than what there was. You know, I would go out, and uh, I had a girlfriend at the time, and we just were not happy with the level of the opportunities, the different kinds of music we could see. So I just started telling people, you know, I'm going to open a nightclub someday. And I just kept telling people for about a year, and then finally people just kept ignoring me because, <laughs> you know, for one, I didn't have any money, and for two, that just seemed like a pipe dream. But I finally did it. Uh, I got lucky. There was uh, Tom Payne's Restaurant, which used to be a fine dining restaurant on North Queen Street. Had been here for years, and it was probably the best restaurant in the area for many years. And they had a back room they used to call the back room. 
and originally it was opened up as a Dixieland jazz room. <clears throat> You're talking in the 60s into the 70s. Uh, and then by the early 80s, uh, the owner's uh, children had tried uh, different versions of, of running the back room, and they would do different kinds of music, uh, some new waves, some early punk. Uh, and then that closed, and it was sitting there closed for about a year, and I knew it was sitting there. So I just went to the owner, and I approached him, and I it was a cold call. He didn't, we never met. And I said, I'd like to open your back room, and I'll pay your rent. And uh, he let me do it, and we opened up in June of 1985 when I was, I was 23. My girlfriend at the time was Alexandra Brown. She was my partner. She was 18, <laughs> uh, so we were just young and enthusiastic. Nice. Do you remember what your first act was? Yeah, I can remember uh, exactly. Well, we had a you call it soft opening, and we hired a local band. Uh, it was called A Wall. It was a Friday night. I think it was June 14th, and. Uh, you know, it was just to get the kinks worked out. Uh, they were like a kind of a blues, rock and blues band. Uh, it was fun. They were good. But the next night was our grand opening, and it was a great band out of uh, Philadelphia called Johnny O and the Classic Dogs of Love, oh. which I still think is a great band. <laughs> but uh, there was a 10-piece band, and they came in. And Jesse will like this. Production-wise, that room was not quite up to snuff. I mean, it was a low, foot-high stage. And uh, I mean, that, one of the reasons I could afford to open it, besides paying the rent, uh, there was the bar was already there. There was a stage there. The original lighting was paint cans that some a gallon paint cans that somebody had turned into light fixtures. And you just, <laughs> I think I've seen Scrappy do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's pretty amazing. And he painted them black, and we hung them up on a bar in front of the stage. But uh, so the first night, you know, you get this ten-piece band. They brought in extra lights, and of course the PA. Uh, the whole room was running this was like room that had been there for many many years was running on a 60 amp breaker oh. like for the entire panel and uh, so once the band started jamming and the light star show started going well just you know it just blew everything out <laughs> fortunately we had candles running at the time uh, and then there was an electrician who happened to be in the audience and uh, we could because we didn't couldn't figure out how to reset it and we, he helped me follow the uh, line the whole way down to the basement and we found the original breaker and then we reset it and then we just turned the lights way down and got the show going again so yeah you just need to keep the lights slow when you're yeah. playing <laughs> nobody needs to see the that's band. actually a great idea like if you're like when the band's playing light and you turn on the lights no it actually trips the breaker and they're done right yeah <laughs> you. always so, running that problem so that was like my first note to myself okay note to self put a 200 amp breaker in this room you know yeah. so and we did so then, um, I guess uh, it sounds like you had a you know nice start to the uh, the business. Then, if you were what I would say three years later, you were you were already like in the new building. Yeah, it took off immediately. Um, first of all, we got a fair amount of press. This is of course pre-internet, but you know, here's this young couple just doing this idea, and people were ready for it. Um, and really, I had I had not I did not have deep pockets. I started with about five thousand dollars and that included the first month's rent and some promotion and some paint and you know just enough to get it going uh and if i had hired if we did too many bad shows in a row that would have been the end of it because i didn't you know like i say it wasn't like i started with a hundred grand or a couple hundred thousand and so each show had to be a winner uh and we were doing three basically three shows a week maybe four shows so wednesday thursday friday saturday uh and it worked. Uh, we were going gangbusters by the end of the first month. Um, one of the shows we brought in was a young guy named Tommy Conwell and the Young Rumblers. Mm. 
and it, depending on your age, who's listening, it may not mean anything to you, but back in the day, that was really something. Think, think early Bruce Springsteen when he was doing the club scene. Tommy was like the next generation, like a George Thorogood slash Tommy Conwell. Uh, and he, had, he was this great performer. And we, we brought him in, and they did a show. And the rumor was that George Thorogood was going to play that night with him. And actually, George apparently pulled by in his car and saw this huge line outside, so he just kept going. <laughs> uh, but Tommy rose, rose to the occasion and it smoked it. And it he ended up having a great career. Uh, Rolling Stone did a 10-page article on him, and he got yep. signed to Columbia Records. Uh, a great career to the point that he got that far, but then he failed to make good records. And it was one of those acts that's a better bar band than they were on record. It's just, you yeah. know. It's an interesting thing. Some things work some places, but not others. So, well, that's really good to hear, especially like opening like a club back in the '80s. Like Lancaster was probably completely different. And oh, it was probably a lot harder. Oh yeah, I mean if you're yeah if you've been hanging out in the scene downtown in the last five years, you know, you're blessed. To, to, yeah. to, <laughs> there's so many options. There's so much excitement for the arts and music. I mean, first Fridays, music Fridays. Uh, you know, we have multiple venues. I mean, a town this size doesn't have as many venues as we have mm -hmm. and you know the guys that tell us are trying stuff and even the wear center you know it's yeah. it's a really a world-class performing arts center uh it's just fun to see all the different things that are happening but yeah back then it was it was dry which is why chameleon opened you know it needed something different the village was always here uh -huh. uh, and they did a good job but they were what you would call a top 40 club which was really the the genre back then and they used to do one band a week typically tuesday through saturday night it might have been the same band the whole week uh, yeah. And that was all people needed because there was no competition. I just, you know, okay, we'll go to the village. Same band. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. that's really lame. <laughs> <laughs> that was typical. Like, each town had their club. Lancaster's club was the village. And so these bands, and one of the popular bands back then was the Sharks. That was the village band. But they would then do the same thing in Harrisburg for a week, and they'd do the same thing in Reading, and they would, you know... So they just worked a circuit, and then there was multiple bands that did the same thing. Uh, whereas I never did that. We always just brought a different band in every night, and frequently had an opening band as well. So. Yeah, I mean that sounds like that sounds like a, something you would do for like a beach town. Like you're gonna, you know, you would take a tour around the beach and you just hang out there for a week. I mean, it's because you're rotating a crowd every day. But like in Lancaster, it's I guess if you're the only venue, then it doesn't matter. You, you have a monopoly. That's right. It. it was more about the drinks than maybe the music. Okay. All yeah, right. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the sharks weren't that good then. No, I. You know what? They they were good. They were cutting edge new wave band. That was a pretty good new sound for the time, and they're good musicians. Um, you know, it wasn't really my thing per se, okay. but uh, I, I have no nothing bad to say about the band. They're good. So, so okay. one of the things that I the community's always impressed me about is that it has a huge disparate taste in, in music that bands of all different styles are in there like it's interesting to me to have something like Wu-Tang Wu -Tang Clan or Insane Clown Posse or like Hanson and they're all big acts but boy they're very different genres of music when you started out um, in the mid 80s were you that were you searching for just any sound that seemed good or were you focused on a particular style or genre of music well no that's ex i mean it's exactly the reason it's called chameleon because the idea was chameleons change color oh, and right. the, the venue would change i'm a you know first and foremost i'm a music fan and uh i would get bored if i listened to the same music every night <laughs> you know i really would and so i mean jazz and blues and funk and reggae and rock and roll and 
it's 100 different variations of rock and roll and you know new wave alternative and it just kept working its way up and grunge and i mean i didn't do too much metal we didn't do too much country but uh you know a little bit of everything else well that would certainly explain why um you had such a good success from the beginning because you could get a variety of music that like it sounded like the village was just kind of doing one thing and then you hear you are having tonight maybe the wife wants to go see country and it's there and then tomorrow night you can go see some good solid rock and roll and and have that sort of variety of flavor uh john petunas who was uh, one of the owners of the uh club of the village uh about 10 years into the chameleon running we we're sitting at a bar drinking together at his bar and he was talking to me and he goes you know and that the village has been the longest running club i think in america by the same family and and while john and his partner pete they were the original they opened it up in the early 50s and they ran it until basically they passed away uh and uh that was the longest running club in america by the same two guys same people uh but he said we've seen clubs come and go over all these years he goes but you're the only one who ever heard us and he he was being it was a compliment he was paying <laughs> like you know because it kind of forced their hand to have to start mixing it up a little bit right you know, yeah oh my gosh so um after when you sold then i was talking to jim albright and he had a joke when that parking lot was for sale which is now is that where uh federal tap house is yeah he mm -hmm. was thinking of buying it and just shutting the parking lot down just like just shut it down just allow no one there to park and then he, since he was an owner of the chameleon everyone have to go to the chameleon that night. <laughs> <laughs> well he, he would have had to buy it off the guys from the village because they bought it off of whoever owned it before them oh okay all right Good. yeah so that was a, a story i was telling with that would have been really that would have hurt them. <laughs> Didn't realize the club scene was that cutthroat, but yeah. <laughs> well, for Friday nights, like you know, you know, it's it, it then you know, what's happening if it's the dance night at the Chameleon, if it's a dance night at the Village, you know, or if it's cover band at the Saturday at the Chameleon, or if it's at the Village, you know, I mean, you have competition for sure. Right, that's true. It's just so weird that I don't really our social group here does not go to the Village on average. You know, if we're going to go someplace, it would probably be Chameleon Net Club now, probably uh, tell us as well, but when was the last time you were at the Village? Oh, God, no. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's interesting that there would be such a good <laughs> I mean, I know people who go, you know, some people who go, but I, I've been to the Chameleon, God, countless times, and I think I've been to the Village once in the last, like, 15 years. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, it. the Village, like, if somebody ever wanted to make, like, a retro film, like, about the 70s or something, they could rent the Village out and film in there because it really right. hasn't it's the same it's got the disco dance floor it, it feels like yeah. a jersey shore club from the mid 70s yeah yes yeah. i mean it's got its charm i just don't think it's uh i don't think of it as like my spot to go to you know and which is interesting that uh you know they've been successful and you know largely so that there's a variety of people in lancaster who want to come in and, and dance and listen to music just not the same places that i go yeah, but no, I remember like it's some if there's a Wednesday night if there's a, if it's hot at the Chameleon Wednesday night and then some years later maybe you, that sh that crowd is not showing at the Chameleon where they're going to the Village you know right. so I mean it is it does seem to be there seems to be a lot of competition. Well, the market's grown too. I mean Lancaster in the last thirty years I think there's about a hundred thousand more people in the county than it was back then. Yeah. So it can certainly support multiple venues at this point. Which is why all of them are working. I'm guessing. <coughs> I hope they continue to. I hope it's not something. I hope I hope they do too. I you know it's. It's a challenge. I mean, you can you can oversaturate a market with too many venues, uh, but everybody, you know, if they do their niche and they work it hard, uh, I think there's enough there's enough energy 
that for people who are coming from out of town, they say, hey, let's just go to Lancaster because we don't even know what's going on. We'll just wander around until we find something we like. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. always exciting. I mean, otherwise, if you go back to my day, if they weren't coming down to see us, they weren't coming down. So, you know, now there's a better chance that somebody's going to stumble into your establishment and just be like, hey, this is really interesting. So, I mean, other than the Blue Star, what, who, what else was music, live music? Well, it was, it was the village. It was dispensing company, and it was you know the Blue Star actually came after we opened, and they had a I guess about a ten year run. Okay. <clears throat> and ultimately, the uh, the family that ran the Blue Star, their son Nick Skiatis, uh, is the one who's now owns the Chameleon Club, and you know one of the he's had a long run. He's been there well since two thousand four, I think. Uh, so what? That's thirteen years, and. Uh, if he hadn't had the experience of running the Blue Star, I don't think he would have made Chameleon last this long because that was a good thing about starting the original Chameleon was I started in a small room. So I got to learn mm-hmm. some of my mistakes and some, you know, you wouldn't want, if somebody just gave you a big, beautiful club and you'd never ran one before, you'd be out of business in six months. Uh, and so, like me, Nick had the same experience of starting in a smaller venue and then moving up. And it was helpful. Yeah, indeed. So how did you stumble onto that building on uh, Water Street? Well, after about three years at the uh, Old Chameleon, it was clear that we had outgrown the space. I mean, we were packed every Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, and also we were starting to get neighbor issues because it was an old building that was never really... And we were doing some loud bands in there and there was apartments pushed up against it. Uh-huh. So we were starting to get some noise, noise issues. So I said, well, am I going to stay in this business? And if I am, what do I want to do? And I knew I wanted to stay in the city. People say, oh, you should put one out in the suburbs. I'm like, no, nah, that just sucks the soul out of everybody. <laughs> Seriously. I, Don't want to become the jukebox. I, I, <laughs> right, yeah. Jukebox. <laughs> hey, divorce. About that. <laughs> divorce people need a place to go yeah. to. <laughs> oh. Oh. Uh, so, okay, so I, I'm going to stay in town. So then you got to look for a location that, well, one, you can put music in. And it can't be up against apartment buildings, and there should be parking nearby, and there shouldn't be a lot of houses right by the entrance. So, this particular place where Chameleon is now was a social club called the Fraternal Order of Eagles, F O E Fraternal Order of Eagles, Airy eighty four, and it's an old social club. There's, they're all over the country at one time. Social clubs were really a big deal back in the day. There's, there's not many left anymore. And you had your elks and your moose, and you know, mm-hmm. and the eagles. Uh, and they had, uh, back in the 30s and 40s, they had about 3,500 members. Um, by the time I bought it in 88, they were down to about 35 members. Nope. They had forgotten to get new members as they were dying <laughs> off. <laughs> and uh, the roof had been leaking for years, and they had buckets on each floor, and they were meeting lower and lower in the facility. They were, <laughs> so like the top three floors were closed off. There was pigeons flying around, uh, you know, and, and buckets catching rain. Uh, so... I got the building for a steal, but literally it went on the market. Uh, my realtor called me in the morning. Hey, hey, this came on the market. You might want to take a look at it. We went over that morning, and uh, by the afternoon, we made an offer on it. So it was on the market like six hours. Wow. Because uh, we knew it was a, I knew it was a good location based on everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, if you've been to the Chameleon since, of course, it, or at all, it has balconies. They weren't there, but I walked in, and I thought, well, we could cut this open. You know, bring steel in and cut it open, and that's exactly what we did. Uh, so, yeah. So, was the entrance always on Water Street then? 
Yeah, we had it was a zoning issue, and also because the garage was on Water Street, it made sense to have the entrance right there. Okay, uh, but we had to go through jump through a lot of zoning hoops to get it, uh, and uh, then one of the stipulations was we couldn't make the main entrance on Prince Street, so we didn't. Okay, well, yeah. I think that's really cool. Like, I mean, you walk down Prince Street; it's a pretty busy street but like you wouldn't really know what that was right and right. it's like they had the double doors open that at that particular time right so that's that's really cool yeah it works out well for like load bus loading and stuff and yeah. then yeah. yeah so and then the obsessive fans looking for autographs <laughs> well it's interesting i never heard of the fraternal order of eagles <laughs> so i wikipedia them real quick apparently they're an order dedicated to the performing arts so if right. they were going to sell to anybody i mean that's like sort of perfect that you came in and can i tell you after all these years i never knew that <laughs> <laughs> they apparently claim for uh establishing mother's day uh, although apparently that's a wow. dispute Whoa. but uh Whoa. yeah apparently they're all about the performing arts and so you know I, had you known that maybe you could come in and be like oh, look it's a club there's gonna be live music they're performing, performing well arts. we got a good deal i mean, we didn't even beat them up they just didn't ask that much for it they just wanted to get rid of it I'm so sure. we, we, we stole it and uh, we were happy to have it. Uh, they did. I did have a dance floor back in the day, and there was photos on the walls from when they used to have, uh, you know, formal dances, and you know, they would have bands and orchestras playing. So it wasn't that big of a stretch, but I did not know. But I think by the time I got them, it was just a drinking organization. So <laughs> did the uh, liquor license That's what it was afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's what all those fraternal orders are. Just drinking yeah. clubs. <laughs> So did the uh, liquor license come with the building? Because I know like no. these days it's impossible, like next to impossible to get a liquor license. Is it was it as hard back then? No, because the town was just dead. Okay, <laughs> so like, <laughs> you could get a liquor license anywhere back then. Uh, no, the social social liquor licenses, the social clubs don't transfer to like a typical restaurant okay. liquor license, right? All right. So yeah, I mean, part of having a jumping town like like Lancaster is now is it's harder to get a liquor license because they only issued so many back in the 30s after Prohibition. Right. Uh, and it pretty much has stayed the same. So. Yeah, I know that uh, we've talked to certain other owners who've owned up recently who've paid, you know, six figures for liquor licenses these days. And that's, you know, for Lancaster, that's steep. But I need mean, look at, like, New York or, you know, other places, and sometimes it can be, like, super... Philadelphia, probably. I'm, I don't even want to fathom what a liquor license in Philadelphia... Well, it's interesting. It, I mean, they, they, they go up and down. Like, it's actually probably more expensive in Manhattan Township than it would be in the city. Uh, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't looked at prices in a while, but when I sold the club, they were going for about 150000 in the early 2000s. Wow. So, yeah. Talk about, a, talk about an investment, you know? You get something on the cheap way 30 years ago, and then suddenly, right. you know... You, well, it wasn't weird. that cheap. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, when did the actual uh, Lizard Lounge become part of the uh, the whole chameleon? Was that a... I opened that up right away. Right away. Um, but really, it was meant to be a cafe. Oh. Um, but we never did a full kitchen in there. Like, we didn't put a grill and a hood in uh, back in the day. So, it was just cold sandwiches, and, you know, maybe we could warm it up under a cheese melter. But it was... Uh, it never really took off, and uh, I have a real respect for people who run successful restaurants because I'm not one of them. <laughs> um, but then I got to thinking about, you know what, why don't we put some music down here as well? And so we, we renovated the Lizard Lounge, and I don't know when you first started hanging out there, Jesse, but was it... Was I started there... hanging out in 93. I started working in 95. All right, so it was before we built the recording studio. Yes. So the Lizard Lounge was pretty happening back then. Yes, it was. It had a beautiful little stage. Uh one of the coolest things we ever did was a Blue Monday series. Mm -hmm. And I used to do touring national blues acts, and some locals too, uh, on Monday nights. And so what you do, say they're coming from Chicago or New Orleans or... 
Texas, and they come to the East Coast and they play Philly and Baltimore and D.C. and New York. And on their way back, we'd catch them on Monday night, and they would play for for us an affordable amount. It was cheap for them too, but it was you know what are you gonna do? It's like I put them up in a hotel and I give them a little bit of money, and they get to play a good gig in a cool town. Uh, and you say, well, why Monday night? Well, there's a lot of people, bartenders for one, uh, a lot of people who work in hospitals, there's a lot of people who work over the weekends, and Mondays are a night off. So you give them something cool to do every week, and they get to make a tradition of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, the bar is always a blast when you've got about 10 bartenders hanging out drinking. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody's buying each other drinks, and the tips are flowing, and it, it's, just a, it's just a whole fun time. Uh, you know, hospital nurses are great when they're having a night off. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, so oh, that I was a, that was always a really cool scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were, t- I mean, we were talking to Flavin before. Um, you know, John Flavin, of course. Yes. And uh, he was talking about like how he tips. So yeah, we know that bartenders know how to tip each other. <laughs> That's uh, they definitely know how to take care of each other for sure. It's true. I'll or- tell you a funny story. There used to be a bar uh, along the kind of still goes still there now. It's reopened now. It's a waterfront. Hmm. But oh, yeah. back in the day, uh, it was called, oh my gosh, now I can't even think of it. Well, way back, it was called the Paddock Inn, but it got, that got wiped out in Hurricane Agnes in 72. And then it, it reopened and it reopened. There's probably been like six or seven different restaurants. But at one point, there was a guy in there running a really cool jazz series on Sunday nights. And he, got, he had good taste in music, and he brought in really good jazz bands. And, he, and it was no cover, but he would pack the place. And it, the, it was a fine dining restaurant, and the, the food would jam. And then the bar would get packed, and then you know, so the food people were wrapping up eating, and the bar was packed, and the bar would be a jamming Sunday night, and it was all bartenders, you know, and it was like every we would get so drunk because <laughs> it was my night off, it would be everybody's night off, and it was just so much fun, and uh, I mean, he made money because even though he had to pay the band a fair amount, fair amount of money because they were good. Uh, the, the place was just so full and did such good business that it made, made economic sense. Though I, he did sell it to a lawyer and an accountant. That uh, sounds familiar. And the first thing they did is they come in the next day and they say, well, he's paying these bands and he's not even charging a cover and, you know, it's just a waste of money. So we'll just cancel the ban. Oh. They went out of business in six months. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's a life lesson learned. A lawyer's and accountant shouldn't run restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> shouldn't run much, that's for sure. <laughs> that was a part ownership for the chameleon that one year that between you and Nick. Yeah, well, you know, it was a JP learning curve. Was a lawyer, yeah. Oh, right. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, he was yeah, one yeah. of the silent partners, except right. for now we're on a podcast and where it's only audio, so he has been spoken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, there's. I mean, you know, accountants have their places and lawyers have their places, uh, but certain rest, certain businesses, I think restaurants and a good bar, uh, ha- you have to have an entrepreneur with a gut feel for the business to run it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You so, definitely had a good gut feel for it. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Well, I grew up with music, so it was easy. When I was a kid, my parents owned a nightclub uh, called Hullabaloo, so I was like six, seven, eight years old. And, you know, sometimes I'd go in and I'd hang out backstage and watch the bands. And that stuff sticks in your head. You know, you're talking late 60s, 68, 69, 70. Uh, I got to see some great bands. I saw The Temptations, like, while they had two, same year they had two number one hits. Wow. And I'm standing right next to their ankles watching them play right off stage. Uh, And it was interesting, though. It wasn't like I spent the rest of my, you know, youth 
pining to own a nightclub. I had totally forgotten about music. I didn't think about it after, you know, that was that. But then when I got to college age and I started hearing music and started going out more, and then that, that stuff would remind me of stuff that I heard when I was six years old. And it was it was like, wow, it was like a light switch. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. I love it. So so what were some of the favorite acts that you had while you were on Early Chameleon? Boy, that's such a broad question. I mean, <laughs> there are certainly memorable nights. Sure. And I've, you know, I've told, probably, I mean, it was, it was my all-time favorite, and that's... Uh, I would say it was Dickie Betts. He was the guitar player in the Allman Brothers. Okay. And this is right. 1986. And uh, he was just touring through, and they were, you know, the Allman Brothers had broken up at that point. Uh, you know, one of the big bands, they break up and get back together and break up and get back together. <laughs> so they were broken up, and so I got them for, I could afford to get them in the small original room. It was probably the smallest room he's ever played in <laughs> since he was in the Allman Brothers. So this was the original location? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, he came in, and I had rented a PA from uh, Jack Nisley. Yeah. And Jack came in to run sound, and it was an old uh, EV system. And, you know, most national acts spec out really high-end stuff, and by their standards, they were like, this system sucks, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? It sounded great. It was old equipment, but it absolutely sounded great. <clears throat> and the band was on fire. And, you know, like, you hire a professional band, you expect them to sound good, and they do. Uh, even on a bad night, they're okay because they're, they're pros. But every once in a while, a pro band has a magical night where everything, like as a musician, you live for those nights. And it was just that kind of night. And it was, we were sold out and truly amazing. But to give you, at the end of the concert, Dickie Betts comes and he grabs my arm and he goes, take me out for a beer. Now, Dickie doesn't know me. I'm just this young punk promoter. And he, uh, I'm like, okay, great. So we walked actually down to, Tom Payne's restaurant. It's just him and I sitting at a bar. And he goes, I haven't played like that in years. And I believed him because it was that magical. And he goes, and sometimes when I play like that, I just want to look over and hand the lead to Dwayne. Oh. Now, for you younger guys, Dwayne Allman was one of the original members of the, of, of the Allman Brothers. I was going to say the Stones. <laughs> uh, but he died in 1971, I believe, in a motorcycle accident. And, you know, the Allman Brothers were already big. And then, you know, they managed to keep their career together after losing their guitar player, who was phenomenal. I mean, Eric Clapton just thought, you know, Dwayne Allman was the god. So for Dickie to say that 14 years or 15 years after the fact, you know, I mean, just the hair in the back of my head, you know, neck stood up. It was amazing. That's how good it was. But yeah, other good shows, I mean, well, you mentioned Fish earlier. Uh, they weren't that big. When I first did them, I had, they sent me a demo and it was handwritten with crayon. Mm. <laughs> it was a Crayons. cassette. Wow. I believe know? they still do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was gonna say, but, uh. Uh, this was, I think, 89 I got it. And I, I had a book. I kept a huge notebook of every demo I ever listened to. Because I, I got so many demos. If I didn't write stuff down, I'd forget them. And I would give a rating of 1 to 10. And I never gave a 1 out. I mean, if you suck, I mean... Nothing. That's just rude. <laughs> but I never gave a 10 out. But the highest rating I ever gave to any band that I got a demo from was Fish. Hmm. Uh, and I gave them a nine and a half. And I wrote, this is the sound of the future. This band's going to be huge. And so, of course, I booked them. And uh, clear, clearly, they had a good career. You were not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, the other fun aspect is watching local bands grow. Uh, the Innocence Mission, the Ocean Blue. Fuel, as you mentioned, yeah. uh, live. You know, they started out as a band, high school band out of uh, York 
called Public Affection. They did our all-age Sundays back then. We used to do all-age shows, two or three bands every Sunday. And uh, immediately, and that was actually my work day. You know, we get the I'd work the ticket booth, get all the kids in the line, take their money, and then I'd go up and do office work, and then the show would be run by the staff. Because most of the bands we booked were young. They were high school, college-age bands, and most of them weren't that good. And so sitting in the room watching it just wasn't my cup of tea for the most part. But I could hear how good this young band was through the walls of my office up in the third floor back in the day. It was thick walls, but it, it was it was Ed's voice and it was the rhythm section that just pulled me out. So uh, I came down and I, I watched them off the balcony and I thought, this is the real deal. So I started giving them great dates and I had them open up for the Ocean Blue, uh, which had just signed to Sire. Right out of Chameleon, by the way. Seymour Stein came down. About six labels came down for a showcase. And Seymour Stein had the biggest checkbook, and he got him to sign to them. But uh, then uh, I put him in front of a band called the Pixies. Mm -hmm. uh, never heard of them. Yeah, never, right. Never heard of those guys. Which is really <laughs> funny, because you know, here's this high school, basically high school, 17, 18-year-old band opening up for the Pixies, which by then were already huge and important. And, uh, you know, so then... Shortly thereafter, you know, Live got a record. Or they weren't called Live, they were called Public Affection. Uh, but then when they got, signed the record deal, they decided to change your name. And uh, that's what they came up with. So that was, that was fun to watch. But, you know, it was funny. Years later, when the Pixies broke up, and then uh, Frank Black, who played in the Pixies, toured on by himself, did a solo thing. And uh, he ended up opening for Live in Europe <laughs> uh, when Live was really big. You know, they were playing arenas and stadiums. And, and so Frank Black did a couple of dates with him. And, you know, Chad Taylor from Live is like, you know, they're backstage in a dressing room. And he goes, do you remember that we opened up for you <laughs> when we were just teenagers? And, uh, yeah, he goes, yeah. You know, and as a club owner, I always tell bands, I said, man, be nice to your openers because you never know how this business is going to shake out, you know? Like, because if, if, the, if the opener sucks, you know, why do you want to rub it in? But it is, it is what it is. And if they happen to be really good, good for them. And you know what? Maybe at some point you'll be working together up the road. So, definitely well, in my case. As I've gotten older, I've really started to appreciate, um, <clears throat> you know, I've been a Nine Inch Nails fan since junior high, and I've seen them in like amphitheaters or, you know, huge arenas. And it's neat when you can kind of see them from through binoculars from like half a mile away. But to be at a small club like that for an awesome, like my favorite show of all time was like a couple years ago in the darkness was at the Chameleon Club and they were just phenomenal. And I kind of went on a lark being like, I like them, but it's kind of a kitschy retro haha funny thing. Nope. I came out of that place as a diehard Darkness fan. They were just so captivating. And, like, I'm as far away from them as I am from you. Yeah. A whole, like, f five feet. And it was just amazing that you could have that energy in a small, compressed area with 300 people in the room, just all there. And that experience is so much more genuine than I, I absolutely huge agree. arenas. I, you know, arenas... I, I can't stand arena shows, you know, or stadium shows. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I can say I did see a couple of really great ones. I saw Pink Floyd down at JFK and oh, nice. best big show I ever saw. The sound was amazing. Um, but like I saw the Rolling Stones, one of my all-time favorite bands, you know, at Veterans Stadium. And it was ridiculous. It was like watching little puppet figures, like, you know, <laughs> 500 feet away from you. <laughs> hmm. I mean, the music's good, but the music's good in my headphones too at home. <laughs> yeah. So, <you> know? yeah. <laughs> 
so yeah, I've, I've had a number of good shows there um, that I've really, really super enjoyed. And I like the intimacy of having the club there. And I enjoy that, um, you know, you focus on obviously most of the shows are 21 or older because you have the alcohol there, but you also um, the, you often have the third story up for 18 and over crowd. So it's, you're trying to get younger kids in to appreciate music as well. Which, well, yeah, it depends on the show, I guess. I mean, you know, Nick runs it a little different than I did, but not much. And, uh, sometimes it's straight up all ages. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's more kids under 21 than over. So you put them on the main floor, you put the old people upstairs drinking <laughs> old being 21. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, you know, some nights it's a lot of over 21 is, but you still want to let some of the kids, you know, like, so you let 30 kids upstairs and they watch it. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a guessing game. Who's coming to see this band when you book them, you know, uh, well, I really appreciate that you t really dove in and put that sort of in the DNA of the Chameleon Club, where you, you know, obviously focused on all ages to try to, you know, educate younger kids or get them hyped about mu live music, local music in their own city, as opposed to. I took a lot of abuse to, to develop that reputation. I mean, you know, now it's the standard for the state, but back when I did it, uh, I took the LCB rated the club, and oh, I had to go through all kinds of hearings and trials and. Uh, I mean, eventually the state legislator changed the law. It's called the Chameleon Law. And it's so that we can effectively run all eight shows the way we ran them. So, yeah. Was that the one involving, was it Sundays? Was it like, was it? It was, it was, uh, they came in, actually, it wasn't even a live show. It was a dance night and they came in and raided us. Uh, well, the Sundays was the first thing I got cleared. Eventually, eventually they allowed us to do Sunday shows, but originally we couldn't. Like, we started doing them, and then they said you can't do them anymore, and then they said you could do them. And then there was the whole thing about having chaperones for eighteen and older shows. That's you had right, to the have chaperones, right? And doormen aren't considered weren't considered chaperones back then. They had to be volunteer chaperones. And uh, I said, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to force people to work for free. So <laughs> I would pay my chaperones. And we got raided, and they shut us down, and then I had to go in front of the state. And I argued my case, and we won, and, you know, whatever. But I made it easier for all the other club owners in the state to do it that way. So, Wow, that's actually super fascinating. I didn't realize that. I mean, I know you look at the Liquor Control Board rules. Um, a year ago, I had to get ramp certified for an event that I was pouring beer at. And it was really fascinating going through and looking at all the different rules and regulations you can't serve you know visibly intoxicated people and who's liable sure. for blah 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 um but they really wanted like volunteer chaperones like it's a high school dance to come in and make sure the 18 through 20 year olds weren't drinking alcohol or, or, or even kids under 18 you know whatever age whatever you age. did but people under yeah they wanted people under 21 to have volunteer chaperones um because they didn't trust the bartenders like well not just because you have to like we had to separate those crowds which was not a problem we always okay, did that right um, but they actually said the people who were watching the kids in the non-alcoholic area of the venue had to be volunteers. <laughs> Why do they need to be volunteers? Though? Well, that's it's not the law anymore. We got that changed. Okay, but, yeah. like, you know, they busted me for it. I'm like, you're kidding me. They I'm... also just didn't like you. Well, that's the other thing. And the rule, the LCB, <laughs> that, was, that was the mayor at the time. Uh, yeah. You know, it was political. My father was running for mayor against him. Uh, so, yeah, okay. no, there's no reality in life. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there's always, you know, follow the money or follow the power, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, it was total bullshit. So, 
Uh, but you know, command stands. I still stand, so fuck it all. Well, you know, and <laughs> nice. bravo, because he doesn't uh, stand. He's not in office, so yeah. No, he's lost many a time. Yeah, <laughs> yes, he has. Congratulations, you so, won. <laughs> any of our listeners under twenty-one, you know, to thank for the fact that you're allowed to go to a club, you know, to listen to live music any day of the week. That's actually really, really crazy. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, given the way that our, our liquor control board is kind of extremely antiquated the way it is, and Pennsylvania isn't exactly the most liberal of states in the first place. And this county, right, pretty solidly red, but uh, <laughs> you know, Lancaster City at least has become a bright beacon of blue and a and a sea of red. And I just threw my politics all over the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's all right. Um, you know, I'll give you one. We did back in the day. I did Marilyn Manson. Yeah, I remember that. I was there. And we did Guar. I was there for that. And, uh, you know, I wasn't making any political statements or anti-religious statements. I was just like, kids were requesting bands. These were national acts. And I said, well, you should do Marilyn Manson. I knew he was kind of did a funky show, you know. Uh, and I knew Guar. I kept pushing Guar off because <laughs> from a pragmatic standpoint, they're a mess. They shoot fake stage yeah. blood yeah. and liquids all over the venue. So you have to cover your soundboard and the monitors and the lights. And I mean, it's just a, they send out 90 gallons of liquid fly all over the venue. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but oh it's a very theatrical metalish band, but they're good musicians and they're art students and they were, it was a creative show. Uh, and I, there was kids, there were hardcore kids who loved the band. They actually loved love Guar, and I figured finally I said, you know, I'll just let them do. I'll give them one show. I'm not going to promote it locally. I don't want the religious right freaking out because they were they were a little weird. Right. Uh, well, they promote themselves, and they got an article in the local paper. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we saw it, it. The religious right freaked out, um, and they formed a religious roundtable. Awesome. Yeah, this what, was what like year the was this? this was like the mid '90s, I think. Okay, I don't right. know you. Uh, it would have been like '94. Yeah, th- yeah '94 sounds right. Yeah, '94 uh, yeah, going into '95. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, they, they're coming, and I can't remember if we did Marilyn Manson first or after, but they were. It was Guar first. Guar first, and then Marilyn Manson, and they were. So the religious right got 900 signatures to ask Chameleon to stop doing these shows, <laughs> uh, or to shut us down. It was—I can't remember quite what they wanted, but it was really nasty. I mean, from my perspective, it's—it's it's like because I didn't care about this music either. Like, I'm not a Guar fan. Like, I wasn't buying their records, but I understood there was a market for what they were doing. I was just trying to stay in business. And Marilyn Manson, I didn't know anything about, but your brother actually, I think, was the one yeah. who said, "Oh, you know who else told me? There was a guy who used to sell rock and roll tour T-shirts on North Queen Street. I forget his name. I'm sorry, uh, but for a short while, I guess he used to be in the touring business. And so bands they go on tour and they they take thousands of shirts with them and they sell them all over the country. And at the end of the tour, they're usually stuck with boxes and boxes of shirts up there. Well, a guy like this would buy their shirts at like a dollar a piece. He'd just, I'll give me a hundred shirts. I'll take, you know. And then he would sell them in the store for 10 or 15 or 20 bucks or whatever it was back then. And yeah, he I said, remember that guy, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, but he's the one who told me, he says, you know, there's this, there's this guy, Marilyn Manson. He goes, I'm selling a lot of his shirts. You should look into getting him. So when an agent called me and said, hey, you, you know, we got this Marilyn Manson. I said, oh, sure, I'll do that. And I, you know, it's a, that was just a business decision. That wasn't like, oh, I love his music. Uh, so I booked it, didn't think anything of it. I didn't know anything about his weirdness, you know, like other than he was just, he wore makeup or something. I was like, well, whatever. So did, you know, Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. So did Kiss. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> uh, so did Boy George. <laughs> but uh, so then he, he kicks off his tour in Texas <clears throat> and immediately it gets weird. 
because in his rider and bands do this especially back then it was fun to put something weird in your rider so one of the things he would put in his rider and the riders when they send that ahead to the promoter hey i want you know i want a deli tray i want pizza i want a case of beer in the dressing room you know fresh ice for the bus that kind of thing so you have a list of things you're supposed to supply and a lot of times lazy promoters don't read those riders and then at the end he wrote i want two live chickens well figuring when they advance the show with the tour manager the guy would say why do you need two live chickens they said don't get the chickens we just want to make sure you read the rider well, the first promoter just got everything on the rider, <laughs> and he gave them two live chickens. Here's your, here's your chickens, because it's Texas. You know, that's what you do. Well, they're everywhere. Just a couple yeah. running around right. the back, right? So the rumor came out that Marilyn Manson was sacrificing live chickens on the stage. This is kind of an old Ozzy Osbourne thing with yeah. the dead bat yeah, or yeah, biting yeah. the head off the bat, which I still don't know if that's true or not. But <clears throat> he didn't – Marilyn Manson is actually – I've met him. He's – perfectly normal like in a conversation way and uh, he did not kill any chickens <laughs> uh, he actually gave chickens to the kid or a kid in an audience who was a rancher and he took them home with him as pets oh so you did actually give him the chickens though you got him chickens i did not get him chickens oh. but, oh, for that but now it was hitting national press that there's this weird act traveling the country oh, yeah. named marilyn manson and he's sacrificing chickens on stage and he's going across the south and by the time he played in atlanta there was PETA protesters outside of his <laughs> shows. So now he was coming up here, and I was getting death threats from PETA people. I bet, yeah. If the chicken dies, you die. You know, I mean, the this is dies, unbelievable. <clears throat> so now, I love that moral equivalency right yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> the religious roundtable is losing their mind. Like, oh, this Rich Roof guy, he's like a devil worshiper. He's bringing all these crazy people to Lancaster. So finally, you know, I, I was just like ignoring it or laughing at it. And finally, I just said, well, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't bring these acts into town. And that was true because I just, the shit wasn't worth it. But it wasn't like I was giving up. I was just like just saying it to say at this point, you know. And uh, and so the religious round tip was, oh, well, then you can continue operating now. Thank you. Oh. Uh, they let it go, and I let it go. And then I proceeded to do cool shit after that. So <laughs> I remember the DA, the, the Lancaster District Attorney, showed up and gave Marilyn Manson a list of things he couldn't do that for that show. Oh, right, right. It was absolutely, it was a long list of uh, you got to keep your clothes on. Like uh, He couldn't publicly display, display himself as a homosexual, was on that list. And then during his performance, he got up uh, lipstick and wrote like fag on his chest and things like that. So really? he had to defy something. No, I remember that was specifically on that. And actually, that might still be on the, like one of the blue laws in Lancaster or whatever <laughs> like that. But, it's, but uh, that was there. And I remember him doing that. He actually read part of it then to the <clears> audience <throat> that night. Yeah, if you give me a list of things I can't do, I'm going to go down and go, which, what can I do? If you're Marilyn right? Manson, yeah. you're not going to be there tomorrow. It's, you know. Right. Well, I wonder how the Tally Ho feels about that with the whole you can't publicly declare yourself. As, well, you display yourself, whatever it was. Yeah. It was well, there was, there was two detectives in the club watching the show to make sure that no laws were being broken. Oh, well. And uh, I know Gary Miller, my manager at the time, uh, he was the, he went back to tell Manson this, you know, Marilyn Manson, that, you know, these are, this is what the police just gave us. You can't do this. And uh, and Gary just tore it up and threw it in a trash can. He goes, "Don't worry about it," you know. <laughs> so Good old Gary. He, Gary goes, "Just have a great show." And so Marilyn Manson went out and did his show, but he was really pissed. He was not happy. Hmm. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> yeah, you're just bringing up bad memories now. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it shows some credit to not only Marilyn Manson fans but to Lancastrians that like. 
the police weren't, you know, the two detectives weren't like accosted or there wasn't like a riot or anything. It was just a show like any other show, I would assume. Yeah, they probably didn't know why they were there either. So well, yeah, yeah. That doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, he didn't actually do those things till the like the last encore when he came out in the leather thong. Oops. So. <laughs> That was Marilyn. You can't well, behave you know. homo. Who, who determines what a homosexual behaves like? Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> <laughs> so, any other weird rider requests that oh, come, yeah. to, come to mind? Um, These are always fun. Well, like we did uh, Greg Allman, and then I got this huge, huge rider. And I'm like, what the hell? And like, we need a dozen loaders, and I'm like, you know, to load equipment in. I'm like, you're coming into a small club, you, you know, and then. A guy calls to advance the show, and I'm talking to him. And I'm like, "This rider is ridiculous." And he goes, "Oh, we sent you the wrong one. That's for that's for arena tours." I'm like, "Oh, okay. So yeah, just give me a deli tray and you know a case of beer." I said, "Great, we're done. All right." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, it wasn't. It wasn't too bad. Uh, no, nothing like what is it? Uh, Van Halen wanted only red M and M's or no red M and M's supposedly. Yeah, and again, part of that is just making sure you read the read the rider. Yeah, yeah that was know. my understanding. Was that it was specifically? Yeah, okay. I guess I don't know. Maybe one of them had like a peanut allergy or something, so they wanted to make sure that you read the rider to make prevent the peanut allergy okay. from being on there or something. So right. I can't imagine that if that's your job, you're not going to read the rider. But I guess some venues just don't care. You know, another one is. Uh, and a lot of bands it is like a dozen tube socks you know or white oh, socks yeah. or knee socks whatever like ankle socks and you're like what What do they need socks for you're on a bus and you're touring with like you know eight guys you know the crew and the band and that's true it's you don't have time to get to the laundry oh. you know it just yeah. stinks it's like <laughs> just th- taking off your old socks and throwing them out and putting fresh ones on feels great you know yeah that's gotta be a good experience yeah I was worried they're gonna pull red hot chili peppers there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> give it away give it away give it away now <laughs> oh god so have you, have you found on average that uh musicians are pretty laid-back chill people or i know jesse's told at least in private some horror stories of certain uh acts that are attitude and not pleasant but for the um, most part the bands are great uh i get i get along with musicians really really well tour managers on the other hand okay uh especially on touring national acts especially in the rock and roll end of things and alternative music in the 90s and the grunge stuff, there were some flaming assholes. Uh, they all came out of Southern California. And they, these bands, you know, they get the record companies sending their band out on the road for a two-month tour. They're going on a bus and a trailer. And they just got to make sure that the band gets to where they're supposed to be on time. So they hire a tour manager to be responsible for the whole thing, collect the money, ship it back to the management. Um, and uh, so they hire usually... A doorman from the Whiskey A Go Go or someplace to be a tour manager. So it's basically the biggest asshole they can find. Uh, and some of those guys do it really well. Um, some of them I get along great with, but some of them just, you know, they were looking for trouble. And so I would give it to them. Uh, but one thing, one time, and I can't remember the act, you had a problem with somebody. Yeah, was Todd Rudgren, was it? No, it wasn't Rundgren. It was a it was a was younger it, band. I thought it was. Didn't you hate no, Moby? No, well Moby, I didn't like either. Um, yeah, he no, was, no, he it was, was a, I thought it was it was he was playing with someone else though. I thought he was playing with someone else, Todd. I could be wrong, but uh, it was the opening band's tour manager that I had the problem with. Okay, I, can't, I just like he was like, why don't we come outside and we can resolve our differences? I'm like, yeah. fuck that! I threw down the cables. I went downstairs, called Rich. This guy wants to beat me up. Yeah, I'm up on the third floor <laughs> just doing my thing. Jesse calls me in the front. He goes, "Hey, I just got a doorman. I mean, a, a tour manager got in my face, and he, he threatened to beat me up." 
And just then, the tour manager's banging on my office door. I said, no worries, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> so the guy opens the door, and he gets in my face. Now, you got to understand, I knew that Jesse was pretty young then. You were like 21. I was maybe. pretty young. Yeah, yeah, I definitely was. But great. He was a great kid. No, not so much, but he was a great kid. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and never, like, he gave, he bent over backwards to give the bands what they wanted. So did his brother. I mean, well, even by the end, your brother was pretty sick of it, too. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, for this guy to threaten to punch Jesse out, just, I didn't even want to hear his story because that's just bullshit. So. And is this a family podcast? Because I can't uh, no, swear. It's not. Okay. This is not a family podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is a beer podcast. So this guy's pounding on my door. First of all, he's pounding on my door, not just knocking. So I open the door, and he comes in, and he gets on my face, and he's saying, you're a sound man. I'm going to, you know, he's bitching about it. And I just shoved the guy over a desk. He literally flipped backwards over the <laughs> desk. <laughs> uh, and then he realized that maybe I shouldn't take that approach with this with Rich. So and then we, we figured figured it all out. But uh I remember the, yeah, it took a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So well, that was good though. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a couple of those run ins with those guys. But you know, you gotta give it as good as you get it. So I, I think, you know, they're coming to Lancaster and they're thinking that it's gonna be some Amish dude and we can push him around <laughs> and I just didn't put up with that. So uh, there's a lot of that in history, though. I mean, I mean, I was when I teach like pop music, and I go over like Led Zeppelin and their tour manager. And how oh, yeah, right. yeah, that book by uh, Bill Grant, the promoter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Led Zeppelin, their their tour manager was it was a criminal, it was a biker gang, it was a yeah. totally the worst. They're just the worst. Yeah, and uh, it it almost was the end of Led Zeppelin at that one San Francisco gig or California gig. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Band came very close to being getting the shit beat out of them by about thirty bouncers. <laughs> but then that's what I mean. The tour manager. It's, I mean, you're on tour. It's not like you have to. I mean, if you break any laws, you're not going to be in town to answer it the next day. I mean, there's like I mean, the tour manager. I guess is hired just to be that attack dog to get things done. And then the band is. They don't have to be assholes then. Right. Am I am I just seeing it wrong, or is that just? Yeah, but I mean, like I don't have to be an asshole because this guy will be it. <laughs> yeah, it's just. You I know, remember, like bands were like, oh, there was a, there was a, who was it was opening up? Um, it was, I don't know if you had the the club at that time. It was New Deal was headlining, and there was a, a band that now Evan's touring with, our friend Evan Lotus was opening up. That was and, after me. Yeah. yeah, and they were asking, hey, can we, can you move some of your equipment so we can uh, sit up in front of you? And they're like, well, you have to ask our tour manager. Right. It's like they know the answer. They know the answer. They don't want to move their equipment. Right. They just want that guy to be the asshole yeah. and to explain, you know, that no, you can't. I'm going to be the dick. I'm right. the one who's paid too. So it seemed like that was the case a lot of times. Yeah, no, that's that's why you have representation. But if my my theory is, or my, my perspective is, you can be a really good tour manager because I've met them and get what you need without being a dick. Mm -hmm. There are ways to do it. Okay. Uh, and then some people just choose not to. So, and you know, in the early days, you know, I was young and polite and I would take, I would absorb a lot of crap. <laughs> and then as time went on, I'm like, fuck these guys. <laughs> that is the exact thing. Like when I was to tell like new engineers, like, I know you're bending over backwards right now, but soon, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're giving you crap. They really are. Yeah. That was, that's, that's the curve of, I guess, owners and sound engineers too. <laughs> there was Jack Nisley hit, and I wish I remember, oh, it was a band called The Neighborhoods from Boston. David Bowie had him open up for the tour for him one time. Uh, and they did a gig, and Jack Nisley was the sound guy at the time. It was, I don't know why he was working, it was at the new club, but he brought his own mics in and he mic'd the guy's drum set up. 
Well, at the end of their show, they do a thing kind of like the Who used to do when they oh, just no. trash their equipment. Mm. Well, they started kicking their drums around the stage, and all of Jack's very expensive mic collection was on this drums. And Jack, who's pretty laid back, basically old hippie type guy, loses his mind. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I look up and he's, I see him picking up like the guy's kick drum and throwing it through the back steps of the, of the venue into the back room, smashing. It. <laughs> it's like you fucking knock my mics, yeah. you know, like just crazy stuff. So, <laughs> oh gosh, I couldn't imagine Jack doing that. Jack is like. Yeah, he is so calm, pacifist. He's the guy who does the sound at the at Long's Park. Oh, all right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's his equipment out there. So yeah, yeah, it's it's old vintage, but it sounds so good, as you mentioned before. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've made this huge digital revolution, and uh, you know, there's a convenience to it. Um, in some ways, it's better, but really, you know, Class A Type Two amps and. Uh, the stuff that came the, the best stuff that came through the 70s and 80s if you if you had that set up right there's nothing that beats it. the sound is just absolutely fantastic so. but what does beat it is that when i'm setting up a set a, a digital board i can carry it myself yeah and do you, how many people do you have to hire to carry like yeah well, no. whatever like jack nisley's like harrison board it's like you right. need eight people to set that thing up it's so heavy oh the biggest <laughs> yeah the biggest boards we used to bring in were the yamaha pm 4000s yeah, yeah for one for monitor and one for you know uh -huh. and, and some of those were like 42 channel or 36 channel or maybe 48 channel i guess it was it was huge boards yeah no i mean there, there there is a reason why the digital takes takes precedent but yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it definitely doesn't sound as good as, you know, Jack's Harrison. <laughs> so, okay, I understand this is a beer podcast. Should we talk beer? Sure. Let's do it. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I'm drinking one right now. This is, what am I drinking here? Two-Hearted Ale. Two-Hearted Ale. Where are these guys from? That? I like Bells. it. From Bells. And where are they from? Michigan. Kalamazoo, Michigan. Okay. Well, I can tell you that Chameleon, though they're doing a good job now stocking the craft beer, um... But when I sold in 2002, craft beer was just starting to get some legs. Uh, when I opened in 85, our number one selling beer was Stroh's. <laughs> oh. uh, and then I started pushing the envelope by bringing in imports. Ooh. I mean, you're talking local bars back then. It was Budweiser. It was Miller Lite. Uh, it, was, it was or Miller, Genuine Draft, uh, and Rolling Rock. Yingling wasn't even a thing back then. Yingling had been around, of course, for over 100 years. But there was definitely an old man's beer in 85. But somewhere a couple years later, they came out with a, the black and tan. And they came out with a new version of the lager. And they came to the sales rep from a local beer distributor, Kirkner's, came in and said, hey, try these Yingling products. And I'm like, I tried them. I liked them. And uh, so I started stocking them. And it took off almost immediately, and it was it was fun to watch because none of the young hip bars were stocking this, and we were the first to do it really in Central PA. And then they would go to the clubs in Harrisburg and say, "Hey, the Chameleon is stocking it," so they started stocking it, and then it just it just snowballed and snowballed. And Dick Yingling owes me a lot of beer. <laughs> <laughs> I I, ma I made that man a billionaire. So uh, <laughs> no, I mean he made a great product and it's done really well. So. Uh, but, uh, you know, so our exotic beers are like Grolsch or Bass, you know, imported beers. I mean, certainly your Heineken's and uh, from Canada, you would have Molson or what are some of the other Canadian beers? But th those, those were just all mainstream commercial breweries, you know, and there really wasn't 
craft beer per se. So you're enjoying a modern revolution of yeah, that's, taste. We live in good times. That's yeah, for we sure. celebrate that every podcast, actually. Right. <laughs> it's, it's true. Well, and again, I'm glad that, that the Chameleon Club has kept that as part of their DNA. Um, I mean, more and more of the smaller venues that you can go to uh, we'll have better options for beer, but uh, a lot of times going to see music means you're probably going to have to, at best, have a Sam Adams, maybe a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale or something. And right. it's pretty nice that at the Chameleon Club, you've got like 30, 40 different bottles to choose from and usually five beers on tap that are craft beer. You can also get your cheap MG, you know, your yeah. High Lifes and your, your pets, other stuff, yeah. but you can get what, yeah, you can get good craft beer, which is really nice, especially like seasonal stuff. Yeah. And I love going there and being like, oh, Nugget Nectar's on tap. Yeah, this night's going to be great. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff. Well, in Pennsylvania, we just, we're blessed. we got all these great breweries just locally, let alone what you can get from all around the country. You know, yeah. uh, you know Victory in Appalachian. And, I mean, it just goes on and on. It's, it's exciting. I mean, you know, for us, again, working with Kirkners, you know, we brought in Red Stripe and we brought in Corona. These were exotic beers for Lancaster in, in the 80s. And, you know. <laughs> uh, Corona, we were like the first to get Corona. And then they couldn't get it anymore. So they literally sent a truck to Mexico and drove it up. I mean, that was <laughs> <laughs> there was no national distribution for it. So. <laughs> Holy hell! Now they're, now they're canning that. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just imagining Trump in his wall right now. I'm like, well, how does this work? <laughs> but you know, if you're a craft beer fan and you discover something new from Idaho, and you're like, "Wow, this is the best stuff." That was kind of like what I was doing. It was exciting. It just wasn't craft beer. It was just beers from other countries, you know. Yeah. Sapporo from Japan or, you know, whatever, just different places, you know. So. No, I mean, that's, that's really cool. And it's just definitely, definitely, it's shown in general, not just in, like, the art community or the music community, how much Lancaster really has grown since we were in school to now. And I, I look at kids who are growing up in Lancaster now going, hey, in high school, I didn't think I was ever going to come back because this place sucked. And it turns out that, no, it actually has really blossomed into a wonderful city over the last, you know, since the, the eight, since I've been here, so the last, last 30 years. Um, and really that's sort of magical that it's not just been not only the quality of food, but the, uh, you know, ethnic food. Rest, we have restaurants for, that have food from all around the world and then music, so much live music, so much of an art community yeah. and our own craft beer stuff. It's like in every facet that you would think of a hip city, we have definitely exploded. When I was a kid, there was one Chinese restaurant in the county and there was nothing else. It was meat and potatoes and one Chinese restaurant. And it just, you know, you now you have so many choices. It's really, it's, it's a pleasure. But so many times when I'm running a club, especially in the 80s and 90s, I had young people come to me and say, you saved my life. Like, Because <laughs> really, if you're stuck in a town, you're young, it always seems boring no matter where you live. Because first of all, you just don't have that many options of things you can do. Right. And we were an option. And uh, so there are people who stayed here or settled here or went away to college and came back here because of Chameleon. And I still run into people who says, you know, they, and people who work for me, you know, young people, obviously it's a stepping stone job for a lot of people. It's not a full-time job for most people, but they'll, they'll tell me to this day, and now they're in their thirties and forties and Hey, it was the best job I ever had, you know, and that's how fun it was. And I think we were a part of the catalyst of what you see now, you know, the, well, geez, I'm a professor teaching audio technology. What did I do for you? You know, audio technology. That's right. you know, right. the, yeah. It was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and great. you learn. I mean, you learn. I don't think you can learn what you do any better than at least the live aspect of it 
than literally having hundreds of bands a year come through. Yeah, I and, mean, it was yeah. it, it was such a like a, a boot camp of audio. And yeah. I mean, when I'm talking to my students now and telling them stories, like that's what I think they enjoy hearing more of the, the stories of working those those bands than like sure. I'm actually showing them how a microphone works. <laughs> I mean, you have to be creative. It has to be, you know, you're doing maybe two or three bands in a night. Some bands late. Mm -hmm. You know, you're dealing with different personalities. You're dealing with different equipment. You have to know how to mic up every amplifier ever made, uh, every drum set, uh, every style of musician. Uh, some people like Drex. Some people like to have their stuff mic'd. Um, and, you know, some people are screamers. Some people sing softly, and you can hardly hear them. And you, how much gain can you get out of that mic without <laughs> getting the feedback? Uh, and so, yeah. I mean, I was never the sound man. But, boy, I learned so much just watching and listening. And, uh, of course, it would always bug me when there was a frequency that was just tearing my head off. And the soundman just was not catching it. Not Jesse, but just, you know, like a touring guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd go over and I'd go, hey, look, look at that girl over there. And I would take the fader and I'd bring it down on the guy. And he would not even notice it. And then be like, thank God. I get, you know, I don't know what frequency it was, but yeah. there's just one that would make you want to, like, punch your fist through a wall. I've, so. There were a lot of times when uh, there was a touring engineer... Um, he was hired by the band, of course, and he would tell me. He, you just confide him, like I'm, I'm going deaf. They don't, they can't know that. Um, if you can help me out, I'll buy you a couple drinks or something like that. Yeah. So like, like, hey, you want to do this, this, and this? And he's like, all right, cool. It's like, it sound good now? I'm like, yeah, it sounds pretty good. And so, and that's just, I guess, how he ran his show. Right. It was pretty weird. Yeah, um, actually, you know, that's there's so many great. Like, I'm writing a book. And I'm writing, there's, there's going to be a chapter about sound men, <laughs> chapter about bouncers, <laughs> uh, chapter about waitresses and bartenders and, uh, you know, light men and, uh, of course, tour managers. And, of course, you know, the bands themselves is the biggest part of it. But uh, sound engineers, I can tell you, uh, when, when Lie went really big, they had the number one record in the country. They were on the cover of Rolling Stone, the cover of Spin. And they came back to do a series of shows at the club before they did a stadium tour. I mean, this was at their very height. And uh, it was really nice of them. They're coming back. And that they had their whole stadium called your arena crew. So it's like you have a stage manager, a tour manager. Uh, you have you know a monitor man, a front of house guy, a light, several light techs, and all your techs, your guitar tech, your drum tech, your bass tech. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So it was a crew of like 12 or 14 people that are going to tour the whole world with these guys. So they're starting off and it's a club show, which is just ludicrous because really you need maybe a sound guy. <laughs> <laughs> so the sound engineer calls me up to advance the show and and he knows it's a club gig and he's smart and he's toured. And so he, you know, like some guys think they've got to demand everything. It's like, just chill out, dude. You're playing a club. But this guy, he got it and he calls me and he goes, I just have one question for you. I said, yeah, what's that? And he goes, how far is the soundboard from the bar? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I said, oh, we're going to get along just fine. <laughs> well, uh, the, the, well the, not the current engineer, but the engineer before that actually installed a refrigerator below the soundboard. <laughs> That's put perfect. Right there. Yeah, he was smart. <laughs> So I guess one of the things that interests us for considering it's behind the bar is obviously hiring bartenders right. and waitresses has to be, what are you looking for as a skill set? Like what, when you're hiring them, are you looking for, for like solid um, stuff? Because obviously talking to bartenders, what they think is great about them is probably different than what perhaps a hiring manager or a boss um, would have to I'm consider. I'm a terrible hirer <laughs> in the sense that um, you're lucky, Jesse. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, uh, like if you're managing a 
chain like Ruby Tuesdays. You know, you gotta there's all this grilling you gotta do and you gotta do proper background checks and there's all this stuff. I'm just like, hey, we're slammed tonight. We could use somebody else behind the bar. What are you doing? <laughs> so, like, and it's usually a regular, like, yeah, well, okay, I'll jump back there. And then they would help out. And you know, maybe they're just getting ice. Maybe they're just getting beer, stocking beer. And it worked out that they were good. And they say, hey, you want to try it again? Yeah, sure. So it would just grow from that naturally. But really, I started my very first two hires were two bartenders. It was Diana and Pete. Pete was an FNM graduate. Diana was, was also local. And they just walked in. They heard we were opening the Chameleon Club. And they just said, do you need any help? Diana was exper highly experienced. She had worked at a lot of local bars. Pete was experienced. He had bartended in a pub in London for two years. Mm. And uh, I got lucky. They were honest. And they both knew bartending inside and out. And they taught me how to bartend. Uh, and they taught, they set the standard. And so... It, we had a we had a good run, and then just hiring in people that way. Uh, same with waitresses. I mean, sometimes you get an experienced waitress, but really in a rock and roll bar, it's what you can tolerate. Like it's a uh, people want beer and they want shots. It's not rock and science, you know. Like you're not making martinis and like. I mean, maybe a good bartender will know all that stuff, but if you're a high end bartender in a fancy fine dining restaurant, you're gonna be like unneeded at chameleon it's like just open up a bottle of beer that's what people want so you know our draft beers uh so we had a real mix mash of people uh that were fun i mean i look for fun people people who like music they had to be music fans you know so, so i'm sorry i didn't give you a better answer <laughs> no that's I mean, fine um i mean i'm thinking about the bartenders that, are that now that i know and they are music lovers and they you know well he did Hire Greg, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. thinking of Greg Barley. Well, and, Greg uh, started as a doorman. Uh, he was he had a he used to work at a local Donnelly plant, and he was just a music fan. And he, I think I started him as a doorman, and then he started. Boy, I, he, he he did everything, you mm. know, which is how he ended up becoming the manager for me. And of course, he's still the manager. So he but he's a crazed music fan. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Which I think. If you're going to work in a music bar, it's kind of important. Though we did have a doorman who was great. Uh, he became a police officer, curiously enough. <laughs> uh, but he knew nothing about music, and he just didn't care. Like He had no ear for it. Like It didn't move him in any way. Which one is this? Well, uh, well he's a local police officer, so I don't want to okay. embarrass him on the okay, podcast. So <laughs> I know of at least a couple that are police officers, more than one. Yeah, well, no, we've had about a dozen guys go on to be police okay, officers right. and various things. Uh so yeah, with Millersville, you had a lot of uh, for doormen, we a lot of criminal justice majors, and some of them became police officers or border patrol, or one was an MP at the White House, or oh, not neat. an MP, a, a Marine, a dress Marine, working the White House. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, some of them are MPs or in the military, uh, or they were MPs in the military, and then they came to work for me. I mean, I had one guy, Scott, really fun guy, and uh, he had served in Somalia. And Bosnia and the first Iraq war. So he's seen everything. I mean, he'd seen the shit. And he came and he was just so chill. <laughs> and, and one night there was this big bar brawl. It was a dance night, I don't know, whatever. And like bodies were flying everywhere on the dance floor. <laughs> and he ends up in the middle of it. And he's on the bottom, and we're like, oh, we're just pulling bodies off and trying to pull them out. Scott, Scott, you're all right. And he's just laughing. <laughs> <laughs> he thought it was the funnest time he ever had. So. 
<laughs> I guess, you know, after you see people shoot each other with, you know, yeah. M sixteens or whatever they're using these days, uh you know, bar brawl's pretty much nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that actually leads me to my in my next question. You know, you talked about um tour managers that you didn't like and you know potentially employees you didn't like but uh the crowds i mean did you have a lot of nights where there was you know fights or just absolute asshole customers that just sort of ruined um, it for everybody it's pretty rare uh for live music live music fans are there for the band you know they're they're, they're usually there for the music so to have a big bra was a rare occasion you know, once a guy once in a while you get two guys that you know, maybe they're barely 21, maybe they're not experienced drinkers, and maybe they're not getting laid that night, and <laughs> one guy looks at the other guy funny, and, you know, but that's, those are pretty easy, you just pull those two clowns apart, and that's the end of it, uh, but a dance night, which, you know, they're, they're, everybody's there, it's a meat market, it's just, mm. everybody, it's not, it's a different vibe, and, uh, and then they're usually there in groups, like, hey, I'll meet you, and like 10 guys come together, and then they have one asshole in the crowd and he starts getting into a fight with another group of guys and then everybody has to stand up for everybody else and all of a sudden you got 20 guys whacking each other didn't happen much but they're pretty memorable when you go through it you know so that's exactly how world war ii got started yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little group of guys I mean, pissed off another group of guys something all of yours dragged into it so like so i say you go with a group of friends and you're going to see your favorite band and then your one friend starts getting into a fight and you can go hey man you know calm your buddy down and we're going to throw you all out and you're like man I want to see my band so you go hey buddy shut up you know shut your mouth and sit down you don't be an asshole and it's, it's a kind of a neat way to control it yeah I mean actually one of the funniest ones there was a guy named Jim Carroll he wrote the book Basketball Diaries oh. he made a movie out of it sounds familiar uh, yeah Leo DiCaprio was in a uh, yeah he, he played he played Jim Carroll yeah it was yeah right and uh he, Jim Carroll came and did a spoken word presentation hmm. at the club. So, really, poetry. <laughs> and there was a guy in the audience. <laughs> Hold on, before we get to this guy. <laughs> I get, I'm up, Jim Carroll's on, getting ready to go on stage. And I get a call in the office. And they say, hey, can I speak to Jim Carroll? And I said, well, he's getting ready to go on stage. He goes, well, this is Lou Reed. <laughs> and I'm like, well, hi, Lou Reed. You know, <laughs> this is Rich. I'm the club owner. What can I do for you? And he goes, well, I'm taking care of Jim's dog because they were neighbors in New York City. <laughs> and he goes, and he got away from me and he got run over by a city bus. Oh, shit. Oh. And I'm like, is he dead? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, can I have him call you after the show? Because <laughs> <laughs> really, I don't want the guy crying on stage. <laughs> so he goes, yeah. I said, all right, I'll help him give you a call when he's done. He goes, all right. So anyway, Jim Carroll's doing his thing. <laughs> fucking Lou Reed <laughs> <laughs> and it's like an art art crowd you know like everybody yeah. we, we put tables in the dance floor everybody's sitting there sipping their glass of wine and you know it's a good show and then this guy just loses his mind and flips the table he's sitting there by himself and he flips the table on the dance floor and he starts yelling at Jim Carroll about something like you don't understand what it's like on the streets well of course he does the guy lived on the streets and he wrote it's a great song too that song Everybody Died that's Jim Carroll I don't know if you ever, it's a classic song. I think it's what Everybody Died or Everyone Died. It's about all his friends who died in New York City growing up on the streets. Anyway, this guy was just clearly emotionally weird. Uh, but I ended up ejecting him. I didn't even have a doorman working that night because I'm thinking, we don't need any bouncers for our poetry reading. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to pick him up and carry him out myself. So. <laughs> 
I can't believe you table flipped. I mean, that is like yeah. the <laughs> apex of being a dick. Is yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he was he wasn't trying to hurt anybody. He was just trying to be emotional and you know dramatic and it was funny and then the so. poor guy had to find out that his dog got run over yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, rough night, rough night. Yeah. jeez i mean there's a lot of, i don't yeah we, there's a lot of those kind of stories but we can talk about music again we can talk about i don't know whatever you guys have questions well so what does i mean at the time when you were coming up with the chameleon obviously that was what something that lancaster needed then right like, what does lancaster need now oh good question Lancaster Roots and Blues, a festival of music. Oh, really? <laughs> that's, if you don't know, that's what I've been doing lately. The last two years, I put on a festival in the winter. Uh, the last weekend in February is going to be this year. Uh, it'll be the third one, 26, 27, and 28 of 16. And, uh, yeah, about a few years ago, actually, when the Chameleon docu- documentary, the movie, by uh, Alan Clements, it was, uh, they had the what it, premiere at the Ware Center. And uh, I hadn't been to the Ware Center, and so I, I went to the premiere. And then afterwards, there was a Q&A on stage with the filmmaker and some of the people in it, and I was in it. So I got up, and I got to speak. And I was looking around. And I said, wow, this is like a truly world-class venue. This is beautiful. It sounds great. You know, it was designed, the acoustics were designed by the guy who did Lincoln Center and Kennedy Center. Yeah. So, and it got me thinking. Like, here was this crowd that was really into the history of Chameleon, and, and watching the movie was packed, sold out. And actually, Harvey, who was running the, the Ware Center back then, you know, I said, you know, we should probably do two nights. And he goes, no, no, nobody's coming to this thing, you know, so we'll just give you one night. And it sold out immediately. And I'm yeah. like, Harvey, we should have done two. And he goes, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, uh, but that got me thinking about possibilities. I had been out of the music business, obviously, since, since 2002. And I had been putting on sporting events, bicycle races and running events and triathlons. And it was fun, but it was just, you know, it wasn't music. And I thought, you know what, town's ready. We got, you know, we have TELUS now, it was coming in. The convention yeah. center was built. It's not really a great music venue, but it was nice, nice hotel. Uh, it, and, you know, the Federal Tap House was being built. Of course, the Ware Center and Chameleon Club. And I thought, you know, we could put together a, a winter festival. I used to run a blues fest every year at Chameleon Club. The first one I did was 1986. And I always did it in February near my birthday. It's kind of a gift to myself. The first year I did it with the concept that, you know, I like the blues and maybe no one's going to come to this thing. So I'll hire a few bands that I like. And if nobody comes, at least it's a present I can give to myself. Well, it turned out to be a successful night. And I brought it back every year for the entire time I owned the club. And it was consistently the biggest weekend of the year for us. So that was my mindset was to bring that back, but on a bigger scale and use the entire town. So this year we have 10 stages at 10 different venues all within walking distance, and it's a wrist bandit type thing you can buy for one night or two nights or three nights or three days because Sunday's going to be basically a daytime thing. Uh, and uh, where you can buy a pass for the whole thing. And a lot of blues bands, a lot of Grammy winners, uh, but, you know, Roots, Americana, Jazz, Folk, uh, we do some funk. We're doing a funk band out of, uh, or a soul band really, out of Chicago called the Omis. And there's so much neat stuff coming in. And the first two years were great. I think we're going to do 10,000 people this year. Awesome. Wow. Yeah, so the whole town's buzzing. We fill all the restaurants. We fill all the hotels. Uh, not just in town, but now we're spreading out into the county. Like uh, Tanger Outlets last year on Sunday after the festival, mm-hmm. their sales were up 30% from the Sunday before, the year before. Wow, you should be getting some money, money off Kickbacks, them. Well, yeah. I mean, they're, 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 all, they're a supporter, but I'm not just promoting them other than to say that 
you know, even the county is feeling the effects of this thing. Like, because late February is a pretty weak period for the businesses, mm-hmm. yeah. and anytime you can take a weekend and fill it, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. It's like the Pope come to visit or something. There yeah. you go. We're yeah. just like the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, and I designed this festival. I mean, it's such a broader range of music. Range of music. It's designed to be anybody's a music fan is going to find just love it. The energy is really high, and you know. In the winter, you say, why in the winter? Well, by the end of February, you got cabin fever. You want to get out. And you know when you're in a club show or any venue and you're hot and you're sweaty, and, you know, the band's done, if you can just walk for five minutes to the next venue, get some fresh air, and you're ready to go again. And it, it just keeps recharging your batteries. And there's like thousands of people just walking on the streets and crisscrossing each other. And everybody's talking about how much fun they're having and seeing bands that don't normally play this town. So I'm back in it and I'm having fun. Good. Good, awesome. good. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, was. I remember I was working. I think a show at the Chameleon. There was a, a Lake Lake Street Dive was playing there. Yeah, the first year we booked Lake Street Dive when they were totally unknown. Actually, I booked them when they were totally unknown. But by the then time they blew they, up, yeah, yeah, they blew up. They played on the Colbert Report two weeks before the festival, and they played on Letterman the night before the festival. Yeah, wow. yeah. I remember it was really unusual because before I was there earlier. I think I was only doing a couple the bands that night, and I remember there was almost no one in the club like a half an hour before the show. And then, as you said, everyone just walks to the next venue. Then the club packs. Right. And it's like, whoa, you know, everyone's here. <laughs> the band plays, and it was amazing. Um, and then 10 minutes later, all everyone's gone again. <laughs> they go to the next venue. Right. It was a really neat experience. Like, it was it gave me a lot of time to set up the next band, you know, and set them up. But it was uh, it was really unusual seeing that happen at Chameleon, you know. Like, oh, I guess they are going to, you know, it just shows you that this is working. This idea of that they can go to these different stages and catch these different performances. It's really it, it's bands gonna- a la carte. It's getting harder though, in the sense that uh, the venues don't empty out as quick because like there's so much, there's so many people oh. now. It's getting bigger, um, but that, that's a good problem to have. It's uh, you know we're, that's why we added more venues this year. Um, yeah, I mean I, I think you know ultimately we're going to start putting twenty thousand people in the town for the weekend. You know, give me a couple more years and that's where we'll be at. So. What's well, crazy, and it's got to be good for all the venues because somebody who comes down and only ever goes to Telus or only ever goes to Chameleon or only ever goes to see stuff at the Ware Center, you're going to push these people around to other venues where they Absolutely. might come back and say, oh my God, I never saw this place. And it's we're getting people, they travel in from New York, Philly, Baltimore, D.C., and, and they uh, you know, also people, expatriates, people who used to live in Lancaster but you know have traveled to live elsewhere for jobs or whatever, they'll come home for this weekend. You know, like, it's a good reason to come home. It's a lot of my old customers. I mean, when I ran the club, over a million people came through the doors. And I was young, and they were young, and we all kind of grew up together. So, like, you know, like, I have over a thousand friends on Facebook. And I'm not <laughs> bragging. It's just to say that I know a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, I've literally hired probably close to 4,000 bands over the years. Wow. And, and, and a lot of those bands had fans, and I got to know a lot of them, you know. So, it's... It's really this great energy of social camaraderie while listening to great music. It, it, yeah, it's a, it's one of the coolest things I've done. I'm, I'm really happy to be doing it. Well, I, I, I know that uh, that weekend the city is actually jam-packed full of people. Yeah. And I've been to a couple of the shows, and they're, they're good. I, it's just I, I personally, as a local, can't handle that number of people. Uh, it's sort of like, oh, my God, go home. I just want to have my city back. But yeah. it's great that uh, for all the business owners disagree with me where uh, they're happy to have all the extra business and when you have to wait in line for dinner for two and a half hours because, you know, the restaurants are totally jammed. Yeah. It's- sure. Federal Tap House had their best weekend. Dispensing Company had their best weekend in 38 years. Wow. Uh, the Elks Club, which we use, it's a social club on North yeah. Duke, 
Uh, they had their best weekend ever. Uh, you know, that's been there since like 100 years ago. I had, I had <laughs> yeah. never been there until Roots and Blues. Yeah, yeah. And one of the Elf Club and had a damn so, good time. And actually this year, at least for Saturday night, we're bringing the village in. So, <laughs> so Chameleon, the Ware Center, Dispensing Company. We're going to do, if, if they fix it up, because there's some leakage problems in the alley, Hunter's Tryst, which oh, is a new yeah. venue, yeah, right? Yeah. Our place. secret underground yeah. place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know. wait, is this that place near the market? Yeah, right next yeah. to market. Okay. It's yeah. a cool subterranean venue. I yeah. love yeah. it. Is that yeah. the, the, with all the couches and yeah, yeah. Couches. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we'll do like some cool jazz down there. And, yeah. Nice. Yeah. So very cool. Yeah, I'm excited for that now. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so personally, I've been getting more into physical fitness. So what was it like running like bike races and stuff? Because I've been biking pretty heavily these days. Well, I, I've had a good run. Before I owned the Chameleon, I was a bike racer. So I've always kept my hand in it. And while I had the club, when Jesse worked for me, we sponsored a cycling team, a Chameleon racing team. Wow. We were the best team in the state. We won a lot of stuff. Uh, and then I also promoted a race every year just to keep my hand in it. Did one race every year. And then after I sold the club, I'm like, well, what am I going to do? And you know, I hung around the house for a few months, and I'm like, I can't do that. So uh, I I got the thing. I actually started to apply for jobs, and I would get physically ill handing in my application. I'm like, I can't work for somebody else. <laughs> I go home. I tell my wife, I said, I can't do this. And she goes, I know. You know, you've, I've, I literally have never worked for anybody else since I've been 22 years old. So uh, I ended up, uh, I came up with a concept. I said, you know what? If I could put some professionalism and raise the bar so i created a series of bike races and we were the biggest series in the country uh and uh i also worked for the pro cycling tour i ran the big race in philadelphia the one that used to start in front of the art museum and went up the maniunk wall oh cool um and uh i've run the pennsylvania state championships five times i've run races in washington dc of course philadelphia and uh it's fun you know it's a lot of work uh, we, I run the uh, Rock Lidditz race the last two years, last three years oh, now. Right. We've done the uh, working for the Rock Lidditz group. It's their event. It's the Rock Lidditz bike race and block party. Okay. And I guess I should reach out to them and see if we're doing it again next year. It's really, like I say, if they call me and they want me to do it, I'll do it with them. So it's it's always a fun event. And we do music. Like the first year we had the Districts play. Okay. Uh, pretty good band. Nice. It's having a pretty good yeah. run. They just opened up for the Rolling Stones. So. Nice. Uh, you know, and they're from Lidditz. They just graduated. I mean, that's a band that took off meteorically. Mm-hmm. Kind of just went right past Lancaster really quickly. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, that that's a neat production thing that we do in the spring. It's the last weekend, last Sunday in April. What are those crowds like? Same sort of... We did about 5,000 people this year. What do you mean, like the vibe or the, the athlete? Oh, it's, it's fun. Well, the cool thing about Lidditz, and you'll like this, uh, we get... I was the first person to do this. We got Main Street... Or I think it's called Main Street. Yeah. Uh, where the bars are, though. Right. Bull's Head. And- Bull's Head and, boy, I'm losing my mind. Across the street's a new one. Joe Boys. Joe Boys, Joe Boys thank yeah. you. So what we do I is we... forget them. Yeah. And, and the Appalachian <laughs> Brewing Company came, and we actually get a liquor license to serve on the street. So you can drink beer watching the bike race outside, oh. walking up and down. Nice. You couldn't do that in Lancaster. No. Uh, I, I think if you worked with the mayor, he's pretty hip. You could probably well, get it done somewhere. King Street Saison kind of, or whatever. The, oh, yeah, that's right. For the, that. the that's, St. Patty's Day thing. Yeah. 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 No, it's exactly, it's the same format. I mean, same right. concept. And so here you have a bike race. And, it, and a lot of people don't even know anything about the bike race. They're just like, well, hey, look at those guys go by fast. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a beer. Well, it's kind of like going to a hockey game. It's like, I think there's a puck down there somewhere. Yeah, but there's <laughs> some fights in hockey, though. Yeah, once in a while. <laughs> 
Yeah, so, <laughs> some, no there's some serious in spills in biking if you're yeah. not careful. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we had actually the first year we had a really spectacular crash in the in the last corner uh, that went viral and was on ESPN and you know, oh. like a million views because the guy hit the fence pretty hard. Oh, like, man. All right, next year make a note, put hay bales up. But uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, and we do we have lots of hay bales now. So uh, so that's a great event, but. Uh, it was a lot of a lot of my events stopped after in 2008 we had the economic crash and a lot of those type of big events are sponsorship driven and sponsorships just dried up for all kinds of things and so that got me thinking what am i going to do next and hence the festival so awesome yes you're quiet yeah so i'm just enjoying all the stories <laughs> i love it <laughs> Well, I won't shut up, and uh, Jesse knows you well, so uh, yeah, yeah. I feel weird Mike, asking questions. Kinda... Like I know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you can lead me down the path of destruction. So. <laughs> well, no, it is neat actually to talk to people who are uh, you know involved in the businesses that we frequent all the time because you do get a different uh, perspective of them. And uh, having known Jesse for as long as I have, you know, he's always told some of the. I mean, a lot of the good stories of like, oh my god, I saw that band and it was the greatest thing ever, and I was working sound and I got to meet them. And then there's the, oh, my God, that guy was such a dick. I can't believe blah, blah, blah stories. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're also know Evan and, and Dan Ramirez really well. who They all have their stories of who was awesome and who sucks. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. But it is interesting to see that, like, the the framework of the chameleon, the, the, the DNA of it was set early on and that they really haven't deviated too far from that even after you sold it. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm really happy that they made the – I mean, it's a lot of work. Like, it's not – it doesn't come easy. And uh, – it, popular music or you know what's going to work is like hitting a shooting target it's always moving so you finally get a couple you know some bands that are working for you oh yeah, yeah these guys are great we'll keep bringing them back and then you bring them back and you bring them back one too many times or too soon and nothing crickets yeah know, it's like oh that didn't work so then you got to keep looking so it's just a constant revolving door and especially since you know at least i ran out with the way that you know you're just always trying to develop new stuff so you're you know, clearly you want to get the big nationals when you can, you know, that are going to fill the room and make everybody happy. But uh, there's not enough of them out there touring, so you always got to be developing stuff, too. Well, it's got to be hard to keep sort of your ear to the ground on all sorts of bands that you wouldn't necessarily, like, listen to otherwise. Like, I'm pretty specified in the kind of stuff that I listen to, and right. I know I wouldn't be good for as a booking agent because I just want that small sliver of a small sliver of a small sliver of a genre and everyone would be like well this is the rob club that only ever plays rob music (laughs) and why would i ever go there and that's got to be really hard to listen to stuff you wouldn't normally like well a couple things you you have conversations and uh, over time i develop almost like focus like if you're a marketing guy you would say these were focus groups but really they were just guys were sitting around a bar drinking (laughs) but i knew like hey these guys like these kind of bands so they're saying hey man there's this new band we saw or we heard and if you get a chance check them out or if you can bring them in and you would know because you say hey these guys are at every ska show it's a ska they're at every ska show and they know all the ska fans and they're telling me there's this new ska band that's great i probably should check it out so you know a little bit of market research is what's going on there. Uh, but I would say, you know, I developed a talent over the years of being able to see a band or hear a band, even on a recording, and know really very quickly if there's anything worth pursuing. Like, Because the funnest part is finding a totally unknown band. It's, it's not, they're not getting airplay. They're not, they don't have video play. But hearing it and saying, that's going to be good. Like the first time I heard Lake Street Dive, 
30 seconds into it, I said, they were one of the reasons I decided to put the festival on. I said, this is a band that we got to bring down here, and I don't own a club, so how am I going to do yeah. this? <laughs> uh, postmodern Jukebox, exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they now have 250 million video views, and we did them at the first festival. Uh, I mean, so there's these, these bands that are just, you know, and you say, well, then you're brilliant, Rich. No, not really. It's I hired a lot of bands that sucked. And there's nothing worse than sitting through a set of painfully bad music and watching people walk out the door. Oh. <laughs> you know, you learn a lot. <laughs> so I would tell you that I'm this naturally brilliant, or I can tell you I learned from doing a lot of really you crappy You took a lot bands. of good risks. I mean, so you took risks, and you're going to miss some. I mean, but yeah. that mean, but it was you had there was a great music scene that was brought on because of you. I mean, there was the modern music fest that you did. Remember that? Right. It was like, right. yeah, you you did take a lot of risks, but you know, it it paid off in so far as at least helping the culture of this town. You know. Well, there's yeah, and and that's one of the reasons the festival's taken off so quickly is because there is a culture of people who respect music here, and yeah. a lot of them grew up at Chameleon. Uh, you know, now they're in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and they, you know, they have kids of their own, and they don't go out as much as they used to. But I'm um, putting on a festival, and they know how to listen to live music. And uh, you know, there was a period there, and a lot of it had to do with the economic crash. But in the 2000s, in the 2012, where a whole generation of kids really didn't hear live music because they couldn't afford to go out, bands couldn't afford to tour. Clubs were just cutting back and doing more DJs because when economic times are tough, you put a DJ on because it's cheaper. There's less mm-hmm. risk. I mean, if 50 people show up for a DJ, you're not losing money. If 50 people show up for a band that you're paying $1,000 to, you're losing money. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you're paying them two or three grand, you're losing a lot of money. And, you know, losses, they say, well, that's just a loss for that night. But a loss, you got to recover. So the next night, you got to make, if you lost $2,000 on one night, you not only have to make two thousand the next night, you got to make four thousand just to get back to any semblance of profitability. So, live music is really risky in economic tough times. So you got a whole generation of kids that came of age who didn't really get a chance to see so many bands, and they're the ones that you know they do the club scene now, like they're, they're the club scene being recorded music. They, that's how what they grew up with. That's how they know how to go out and have fun. But now in the last two, three years, and the Americana scene, I think, has something to do with it. It's kind of broken up. Musicians have figured out a way. And t- they broke down, and they went down to like two- and three-piece bands or four-piece acoustic bands. It's cheaper to take on the road. Uh, and they're good. There's some really good bands out there. Uh, and, you know, bands that went national, like Mumford & Sons, you know, it was a sound that people say, yeah, I could give that a listen. And so if you had a local band doing the same thing. So it's fun. It, I, you know, it... Live music is coming back around, as far as I see it, even for young people. But there was definitely a dry period there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely remember. Uh, so when I was getting involved in the Chameleon in the mid-90s, I remember there were people who would go out to a show, regardless if they knew who was playing or not. Like right. They might know one band, and they would go out to it. There's, there's, you know, it's a scene. And then when I was there in the, the mid-2000s, in the late-2000s, and it was just... you people to only go to shows if they knew the band actually right. there wasn't there wasn't that scene to like let's see what's new uh coming to town um but yeah i think we definitely have more of a a culture of people accepting and are curious of new music and to experience that yeah you can't like you couldn't just take a good band and put them in the middle of altoona and expect people to show up that mm-hmm. doesn't happen uh and in lancaster it does you know so you know the joke is like lancaster is a hick town we're in pennsylvania yeah, you know what? I think we're one of the best towns in the country. I mean, I really do. Like, I think we stand up. We measure, as you mentioned earlier, uh, 
we have an art scene that's really good. We have food. We have music. Um, you know, and we can go out and go on a bike ride in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't yeah. do that in Midtown Manhattan. No. So. As, as somebody who's gotten really back into biking, like it is sort of amazing that you can hop on a bike and in six miles you're in farm country and it's beautiful and you feel like you're in an entirely different world. Right. And then you get back to town and it's like, well, there's 13 different craft breweries I can check out and yep. you know 50 different ethnic restaurants and I can go see a play and yeah. you know go watch somebody singing at a coffee shop and it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, we have a symphony orchestra. We have multiple theater companies and good quality stuff and you know if you're really jonesing you can jump on a train and be in philadelphia in an hour in new york in two and a half and you know get your big city fix but yeah I, this this town to me is perfect i mean i, I it, i'm just a huge fan so can't disagree with that sentiment nope, at all well. <laughs> That's it for today's show. I want to thank uh, Rich Ruoff for joining us here tonight. Um, it was really fascinating getting uh, a really great in-depth behind-the-scene look at one of uh, our staple places to go to have both beer and listen to great live music. I know for uh, Jesse, Mike, and myself, we've been there ugh, more times than I could probably count um, for all manner of shows from supporting our uh, idiot friends who have bands to <laughs> seeing fantastic national acts who happen to be just passing through um, to driving down, watching uh, juggalos in face makeup um, oh and, and laughing sort of at that people Why watching. Why mentioning that? Because <laughs> it's just hilarious that they came here and that they had a line out the door. That's you just didn't have to clean up their fago root beer afterwards. Well, well, I guess I didn't either. That was cranch. Oh. But, but uh, yeah, join us next week for our next full episode as we get uh, deeper and deeper into uh, the fall here and start uh, I guess suffering through some no, pumpkin beers no not doing it um, no, Emily will be back uh, from her adventures so we'll have to hear about what she's been doing uh, overseas and uh, hopefully taste some more beers from around the world and uh, we will be back with another uh, behind the bar uh, sample episode series episode uh, probably sometime next month so thanks for listening and of course keep on drinking that's today's show For more information on today's podcast or to subscribe to the show, visit www.blindtigerpodcast.com or look for us on iTunes. Send comments or questions to show at blindtigerpodcast.com. To suggest or request a beer for beer versus beer or to ask a question for Homebrew 101, email show at blindtigerpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and keep drinking. Keep drinking.